G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to our 12th episode of Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. Our theme for Series 6, Taking the Australian Ecosystem from Good to Great, continues with a focus on mentoring. Alan Jones is a renowned startup mentor, and he's here to share what he's learned and what he has to teach. Then we'll catch up with GoFar co-founders Danny Adams and Ian Davidson to find out what they've learned over the last four years about cars and the data they generate. Wisdom from the Mentor and Wheels on the Data on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by MYOB. Running a startup is pretty cool, but doing the books isn't. MYOB makes it easier. For your free trial, visit myob.com slash twista. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, supporting students to become startup founders. UTS is engaging, inspiring, and connecting students to take the leap as startup founders. Check out what they're up to at startups.uts.edu.au. And This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Campaign Monitor. When it comes to email marketing, there's so much more that goes into creating smart and effective campaigns than what meets the eye. To start building smart and beautiful email newsletters today, try Campaign Monitor for free at campaignmonitor.com twist. Twister listeners, this is Mark Pesci with a bit of an embarrassing admission. We recorded an amazing interview with Alan Jones, and you're about to hear the second half of that interview because in my enthusiasm as we finished up the interview, I hit the save button and managed to completely overwrite the first half of that interview. And so here, with my profoundest apologies, is the second half of an interview on mentoring with Alan Jones. And we're back talking to the mentor. Oh, I love that, Mark. We're going to do more of that. We're going to, I, th- I think we're starting a trend here. So, so, Alan, would you say that you invest because you mentor or do you mentor because you invest? I started investing because I was learning what a bad startup founder I was. Um, <laughs> And I looked at the money I had left over from from being an early hire at Yahoo and figured out, you know, I was I was going to have to start um, using other people's money, uh, or start investing my money in other people's startups. Right. Um, so luckily for me, that that came around the same time as people started to think that Australia needed to have an accelerator program because mm. um, we could see Y Combinator and Techstars kicking out great companies in the US and Australia had a gap back then between you know your own credit card and, and Series A venture capital yes. that was huge. Yes. It was, it was, we talked about that a lot in the first series. There was just nothing around yeah. to fill that gap. Yeah. yeah, you know, and people would recycle, you know, go out and apply for five credit cards and try and keep them going for, for three, four years until they were Series A ready. Um, so when Nikki Shavak said, you know, 
okay, I'm sick of everybody whinging about it. I'll, I'll, I'll do it, and and you guys, you know, put in some money. I, I put my hand up right away because I thought there's some other people in this group that know about angel investing, mm. and I'm really bad at maths. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to learn how to do this so that I can be part of. of multiple startup journeys at once and, and, and maybe not lose all of my money. Um, so that's where I started. And so that was sort of um, uh, 2008, 2009, 2010. Memory's a bit fuzzy. Um, and and then Polonizer was was the other thing mm-hmm. um, that I backed at the same time. More of a startup studio model, but right. an opportunity for me to invest in a bunch of early stage startups at once and, and try and help them go forward. Um, and And Polonizer, wow, Polonizer created Spreets, yeah. you know, a 40 million exit to, to Yahoo, um, I think two years yeah. after yeah, after it was founded, um, and, and, and a few other uh, other um, great yeah, stuff. They were still on, were in that tiny office on uh, Favreau Street. Yeah, yeah, and Commonwealth Street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, hashtag suck at Surrey Hills, and <laughs> and um, uh, so, so so that was that was the beginning for me. And it turned out that um, most of the of the like the business and the contractual and the financial part of of, of angel investing wasn't that hard. But there mm. were there were two big challenges. One was was deal flow, yep. getting to meet the right companies, yep. um, and and two was actually building a, a trusted relationship with uh, founders given that I couldn't write the the biggest check um, you know how else, on, on, on the great companies where there was a lot of interest from investors how was I going to make sure that, that I got in um, a bit of good money. advice yeah so I started working maybe um, with the startup with with the startups in the startmate program mm-hmm. um, pretty hard pretty early on um, and and I swore to myself that um, I would invest in at least one startmate company each each cohort, um, and and that panned out really well. <laughs> um, so you know, I'm very count myself very very fortunate to be. Um, oh gosh, I know I'm going to miss out on some now, but but companies like UpGuard and uh, BugCrowd mm. and Macropod and Elevio and Workyard. And I'm sorry if I've forgotten you guys. Propeller Aero, did I say them? Propeller. Um, so they're all Startmate um, uh, cohort graduates. Um, and then to work with Blue Chili companies, the same kind of thing happened. Um, how about Eat? Sadly, no longer with us. Um, uh, Top Me, um, still going strong. Um, a few other great companies in the, in the mix there from Blue Chili as well. Um, so I, I think for people who come from a technology industry and have something to add as an advisor, mm and who have some capital and might be interested in making some angel investments, I think are a really good first stepping stone is is to hone your skills and your and broaden your deal flow by volunteering some time to help out at an accelerator program. And now pretty much every every university in the country has either an accelerator or an incubator or some kind of support for startups. Yeah. You know, Murray was on the show recently talking about the amazing work they're doing there with UTS yeah. and Forty million students at the university identifies a startup founder. I think I think that was the number. Um, it's a large well. It's a huge number. Th- but this is the thing, and, and I think this is a, a good point to talk about this because if, and I actually do think the vision will be realised, and not just at UTS, although perhaps first there, but across the Australian university system, that what the university is becoming is the thing that doesn't 
just grant you a certificate that says that you've had this course of study. But what it does is it gives you the necessary scaffolding to be able to create your own economic self-determination, right? Which we, 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 we use the word entrepreneur today, which sort of is the trope for all of that. But it's really a whole other set of skills. And if we're talking now about 10,000 students a year graduating out of UTS effectively as their own self-business economic entities. We don't really know too much about how that world works, and we don't necessarily know a lot about how to support that world. What can we think of about how to mentor for that world? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, the, the, um, it used to be that, that every profession had a career path. You yeah. Know, there was a... There was a intern level or a cadet level and then there was a junior level and then several mid-levels and then a senior level and then a director level and now I think it's really only the regulated professions where there is any kind of career path anymore for the rest of us we learn some skills you know university forces us to learn more about the broader world than we probably would otherwise Um, and and then we're set free and I think for most students today, if if they're not in their final years of university and, and already are part of a business or, or already starting their own business, I think they're you know they're, they're leaving it a bit too late. Mm. Um, they're going to be able to find um, contract work when they graduate. They're going to be able to obviously you know dip in and out of the gig economy when they need to mm. to 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 fund their life. But to create any sort of lasting economic value for themselves, it pretty much comes down to being part of a founding team of a, of a new business. Mm. Um, now, you can just be, you know, you can graduate from dentistry and go on and, and be part of um, a team at a, at a dental practice and after f- five or ten year, hard years, you can start your own dental practice. Um, but at the same time, you can look at the challenges that face people running dental practices mm. and think is there a business that I could create that solves a problem that it the makes whole... makes their lives easier. Yeah, yeah. that whole industry yeah. suffers, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difficult pivot that we're partway through at the moment in our, in our tertiary education system. Because the dentist on graduation thinks that I'm good at dentistry and doesn't think that they're good at anything else. And so they may have this thought that I could solve the problem, but then immediately tells themselves, oh, but I don't know how to solve that. Yeah. I, I can see the solution, but I don't know how to do anything else around it because I'm just a dentist. Yeah, my responsibility is just to fix the teeth. And, yeah. you know, I've got my blinkers either side yeah. of myself, you know. Yeah, but not, I mean, it, yes, it's just your responsibility, but I, but I think the entire world has told you that this is what you're good at and you're not good at this. And people actually tend to take that on. They tend to believe it rather than, again, so, risking the fact that they're going to make mistakes, but they're still going to give it a go. Totally, totally. And, and, and one of the few things maybe that age brings us in, in the way of wisdom is, is how much we can surprise ourselves later in life about mm. things that we turned out to be much better at than we you know, ever defined ourselves. Because at school, the moment you show any sort of slightly better than average proficiency in a thing, then you get, you get streamed off into that. Oh, you're, you're one of our math kids, you're one of our yeah. English kids, kids science English kids, kids yeah. sport you know, um, as soon as they see that, you know that the the school system still got this sort of industrial age yeah. approach to to educating kids. You know, let's stream them as quickly as we can, and everybody's a wholly developed person. You know, everybody's got more to learn. I've got a, a friend, um, Adam Connor, 
used to be a DJ, um, ran an, an Apple Mac reseller for a number of years, um, came and did one of those Oxfam trail walkers with me mm. and said, you know what, I, I really like this, and turned himself around, you know, in his 40s from from a schlub to, um, to an ultramarathon runner, you know? <laughs> He can so run. he really liked it. Yeah, he, that guy can run hundreds of miles through Death Valley Jeez. without stopping. Jeez. You know. Okay. It's, uh, um, so so you know, we like to think when we're young that that uh, uh, that we know who we are when we're twenty. I don't think we know who we are when we're in our fifties. Yeah. Well, uh, we may. I think we have more clues to go on when we're in our fifties. But I agree with you. I think it's it's all a process, and and part of that is that. We, I, we want people to know what they are in their 20s, and yet at the same time, we actually want to be able to make sure that they can explore who they are. Yeah. Right? But I also want to be able to explore as a 55-year-old. I want to be able to explore. And it turns out that I have the opportunities to do that in part because I'm lucky enough, I'm blessed enough that I've had now a 30-year mentoring relationship. Wow. Right. Yeah, exactly. So this is someone that I met when I was first, I just moved to San Francisco and he had already been working in virtual reality for a few years, all right? And we hit it off immediately. We'd grown up in the same part of the world and this relationship continues. You know, we're still in more or less constant communication even though Mm. he's still in America. But I know that I would not be the person that I am today and I would not have the skills and I would not have taken the risks that I had taken today without that mentoring. That's awesome. But that also says that mentoring in a lot of ways, and that's not going to be every mentoring relationship, but there are going to be some mentoring relationships that we'll all have mm. that will that will effectively be lifelong. Yeah, and there's a lot of inflection points in my life where there was a key person um, who, you know, for a brief period of time or for a long period of time was an important mentor to me, and it was when they said... That's actually not a crazy idea. You totally should do that. Right. They gave you permission. Yeah, yeah. That made a huge difference for me. Um, And I think, um, you know, now that we have... Now that we have the internet, says the old man... (laughs) Exactly. um, We don't necessarily have to... um, to, to fade away from, from any of those relationships. There's a guy um, in the Midwest of the US, Eric Young, and he and I used to work together at a long defunct software company called WordPerfect. Oh, um, yeah. oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> be still my sweet little heart. Yes, <laughs> I was an early product. WordPerfect user, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So so Eric Eric was in one um, the business I was in Australia and and uh, I can't remember how we struck that relationship up, but but we still, you know, we're giving each other advice um, to this day, yeah. to this day, you know. And so he's uh, he's on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I've never met his his wife and kids, but you know, I know them all by name. They know, you know all about my family. Um, and and so there are times when you know I'll reach out to that person for for what we would consider business mentoring, and mm-hmm. other times when it's just hey, you know, how you doing, mate? How you doing? Let me turn this around. This is sort of the final question. You know, you're the mentor mentoring the startups, but if you're a startup, what would you advise them about how to work with mentors, how to approach the idea of mentors, how to be most receptive? What what advice would you give them around that? Um, wow, that's a that's a tough one. I haven't approached it from that angle. Um, I think. Um, you know, I think we all respond better to warm introductions and mm. and a request for 
specific advice about about a thing. Specificity is always good. You're right, particularly if someone is busy, right? Because yeah. you kind of don't know what you're being put on the hook for. Yeah, and you can you can pretty much guarantee that everybody is busy these <laughs> days. So, yes. so specificity. So so researching the person you want to ask for advice to see if they might already have a publicly stated answer to this question is a is a good point. Now you know I've got. A rule um, that forces me to blog more frequently than I would otherwise that says any time I give somebody that three different people the same advice, it's time to write a blog post about it, yeah. um, and then I can just copy and paste. Oh, here's the answer to your question. We don't have to meet for a coffee. Here you go. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and so, like, I really appreciate it when somebody says, I read that blog post you wrote about startup T-shirts, and I just had, like, Two more questions. Here's the two questions. Mm. Um, but it, also, we could we could meet for a coffee and chat. You know, if you do, if you don't want to answer our email, that that for me is um, pretty great. If if it's a cold intro, um, we all respond, I think, to to warm intros because a warm intro, the person doing the warm intro is is qualifying the lead. If you like, yes. you know, I know this person is of a sufficient caliber to. Absolutely. To be an interesting person you, for you to meet. You can't get anything done in Japan without personal introductions. It's the way Japan and China both work. Yeah, right. So, yeah, it's absolutely You know, I think in, in, in Australia, you know, we live in, a, in an arid, hostile environment for startups, and so I don't, I, I don't think it's um, any easier here, you know, in that the, the supply demand between capital and startups and, and expert advice and and, and beginning people um is 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 way out of whack way out of whack you know there are way too many people um in our in our venture capital community in our angel investor networks um who perhaps have worked for technology companies before but have never been a startup founder who have perhaps you know run a fund in another industry but Mm. have never been a startup founder Mm. um have perhaps been um, a senior executive in a fast-growing business but have never been a tech startup founder um, all of those people have have really great um, lessons to teach us, but nothing really um, is is more helpful than the empathy that comes from. Oh man, I feel your pain. Like I remember. Yes, I remember. And and when I think back to it, it all comes rushing back, and I get yeah, exactly. And you, and you get that exactly. You get that sort of chill inside. It's like oh god, I remember yeah. this. I remember yeah. how this feels. Because yeah. you're just gonna you're gonna dig harder, dig harder to try and help somebody get out of that hole. Um, if if you've been there yourself, um, so yeah, does that answer? That was a fantastic answer, Alan. Thank you so much for joining us on this week in Startups Australia. Thank you, founders. MYOB saves businesses time, helps improve cash flow, gets invoices paid faster, gives real-time visibility of profit and loss, and makes payroll easy. With MYOB, you can create, send, and track customized invoices. This is awesome because Australian businesses can wait on average 43 days to get paid. With MYOB, your clients can pay you directly from your invoices. People who use the MYOB online invoicing solution get paid four times faster. MYOB software will let you know when you've been paid, then update the accounts. You don't have to lift a finger. 
MYOB's online solutions make pay runs quick and easy, ensuring all of your tax and super payments are compliant with the Australian Tax Office. You can save half a day every month on processing employee pay. MYOB's mobile app means you can create a quote on the job, send invoices straight from the app, and even get paid on the same day you invoice. 1.2 million businesses in Australia and New Zealand use MYOB. Startups, sole traders, and small businesses, all the way up to companies with hundreds of staff. Whatever your stage or size, MYOB has a solution for you. Twista listeners will get a free 30-day trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will also get $100 in cash. Go to myob.com slash Twista for your free trial today. I think it was probably on episode number four or five of the original first series of This Week in Startups Australia that we spoke with Ian Davidson and Danny Adams of GoFar. They had just finished a Kickstarter, which raised several hundred thousand dollars for the first generation of their product. And they were now on the process of of actually getting a product that would go to market. And I am very happy to welcome Danny and Ian back to the studio to reflect now on the journey four and a half years in. So welcome back, gentlemen. Um, thanks for having us, Mark. Thank you very much. So I guess the first question is, and I and I asked the same question because Tim Fong was the first guest, right? You guys were like the third or fourth guest. If you can sum up in a few words what you've learned about your business in four years... You don't have to do it in 10 words. You can do it in a few hundred words. But what would you sum up what you've learned? Um, I'll start on this one. So the, the um, customer is, is king. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think for, for, for a, lot of, a lot of people and a lot of people in startups, we come into, into our ideas um, without really consulting a lot with customers. Mm-hmm. The, the golden rule is to do so. And I think one way or another, you learn that. So that has been a, a key learning that... that um, you know, being very close to customers and understanding their needs is just critical to to development because that's the, the the second thing that I would say that I've learned is whatever you think, you're probably wrong. <laughs> because you're only thinking it, you haven't put it to the test. Right. Yes. And, and so those two things have been some really important learnings. You're wrong, but the customer is right. So you, you, you can go and get the answers from the customer. So did you find your customers using the product in ways that you had never even thought of or ways that you even just thought were wrong? And wait, let's back up for our listeners. What is the product? Just because some of them may not have listened to that okay. first show. Um, so GoFar is a connected car technology. Um, we have developed it right here in Sydney and we export to the world. So we have users Yay. in 52 countries in the world. So we're really proud of that. And the the product consists of three parts. We have a, an adapter, which plugs into the car's diagnostics port and a mobile application, which collects and displays data to the user. And we also have a little uh, dash mounted display that we call the Ray, which gives feedback to the driver. So through this system, we are able to deliver all sorts of features and, and value to our, to our users. And the one that you knew you would be delivering, 
the one that you sort of built the pitch on originally was that it was going to make people more efficient drivers, that they would save fuel because the, the device, the ray would be sort of showing them when to do this. What else has sort of grown out of that experience with customers? Well, I think one thing that's that's been interesting, I, I agree with Danny that the that the essence of this is basically the collision of your ideas with customers and then what, what falls out from that. We very much started on, on efficiency um, and we were trying to get driver behavior change. We were trying to get um, an ecological outcome by rewarding and motivating uh, people with, uh, with cheaper driving. Um, and that, that's worked well and it's particularly work, it's starting to work very well now because we've just seen a 40% increase uh, in, in fuel prices in the last year, um, which is very helpful for us because when we just after we launched, we had about two years of really low petrol prices, which is very unhelpful, but you, know, you can't control for the macroeconomics. Um, whilst we were waiting for fuel prices to go up again, and we knew they would, um, we did see we saw customers were using the product in different ways, and so one of the one of the um, sort of interesting ones that we we've, we've jumped on has been uh, we're giving customers information on their car that helps empowers them when they're dealing with their mechanic, because uh, a lot of customers eighty percent of of Australians don't trust their mechanic for, for you know, rightly or wrongly, and they feel very disempowered in that relationship. But we can tell them we can sort of you know, arbitrate and sort of tell them what's wrong with the car, so they can. You know, check out a few mechanics before they drop the car off. The other thing that's been really interesting has been just observing how people were using one of our logging features, uh, and they were using that for tax tracking. Uh, and tax tracking, you can keep a. The best way to do it is to keep a, a logbook for twelve weeks. Uh, but most people prefer to go to the dentist than keep a logbook for twelve weeks. It's excruciating. Um, and we're automating that, so we just kind of make that go away. But it was quite sort of. It was like two levels down, three levels down in the product, and we saw people who were who were doing that, mm-hmm. and they were super sticky. Um, and so we've seen that we had really high engagement and retention with those customers. And so we've surfaced it, you know, really sort of made it sort of top level in the product. It's now basically, I think Danny describes it as Tinder for, for expenses, if that's the thing. You just swipe right, all your trips appear in the app. You swipe right and now you've earned money from the government. It's, uh, it's awesome. There's this wonderful line from William Gibson, the street finds its own use for things, uses its makers never intended. And it sounds like when you're surfacing this this tax facility um, that you're making life not just easier for the drivers, but you're also making it easier for the accountants who have to then deal with this logbook and figure out how to sort of deal it. And you're also making it easier for the government because the government's now getting a trail of data that they can also rely on. I, I think so, yeah. The, the government is... The main thing they're worried about is is fiction. Um, so we're helping people optimize their tax claim, and that, that can be worth you know a few thousand dollars a year. Um, but also decrease the level of, of fiction, not friction, well, but, but fiction. That, that, yes. That's the thing. That's what the government is is most worried about. They're they're not you know they're worried about people just making this up. Yeah. Um, and because let's face it, if it's that hard to do, people will just put things into the book. And, yeah. and there's a term that I've come across a few times now with, with multiple customers, that is running the gauntlet. 
as they, as they put it. So, you know, it's so hard to keep the logbook right. that... Um, they just do it because this is the thing they have to do and maybe they'll get caught. Right. Yes. right. So, so this is a godsend to them because it's, it makes it simple and they don't have to risk that anymore. So I guess my first question then is, have you gone to the accountants in this country and said, here's the thing that you need to put your clients on the straight and narrow around their automotive expenses? Uh, we, we've started that and we've had, I mean, and again, that's been driven by the marketplace. Yeah. So some of these accountants have been approaching us, um, using it for themselves and then sort of recommending it to their customers. Uh, so, yeah, it looks like it's an interesting channel. And, and another thing that's interesting is many of our customers are discovering it. It solves a problem for them. They're taking it to their accountants and their accountants are going, wow, look at this. And then the accountants are selling it to other other customers. Uh, no, no this, is, this is exactly what you would want to see out of something like this. All right. Now, about a year in, I had a conversation with both of you in which you said, uh, you know, I think at that point you'd had probably a million kilometers driven. How many million kilometers have been driven now? Oh, Danny's, well, Danny's yeah. going to find the number. Do you have the number on well, the dashboard well, somewhere? It's on the website. We have a live counter on the website, which and, we're just about to hit 60 million. Okay, so you have 60 million kilometers driven. And the thing that you hadn't realized when you launched, and I thought was brilliant, is you realized that you were getting a stream of data from all of these vehicles all over the world and that you were learning things from that data. What came of that initial observation that you didn't maybe think when you were building the company? What came from that stream of data? What have you learned and how has that changed the business? Well, I think the the, the data has always been a, a pretty fundamental um, aspect. You know, it is the underlying value of the business is the data. Um, and so as we're sort of aggregating that, that data set, um, it allows us to do more things for our customers. Uh, and so we've seen, you know, it, we hear a lot about big data mm. um, and data being gold. And, you know, we, we sort of talk about this in our company as well. And we say it's pretty similar to normal gold in that it's usually really deep down and surrounded by a, a whole bunch of crap that you've got to get rid of first, just like gold. Um, and so the real value seems to be in distilling, refining right. that, that data into something actually useful. Um, so do you now have an analytics crew who's, who spends their time finding the, the gold in all of the crap? We, we've actually got, I think, got about four data scientists pouring over our data so at the you moment. you do, yeah. Um, not working for us directly. Mm -hmm. So that's um, one, of the, one of the sort of customer groups that mm -hmm. was particularly interested in our original um, uh, customer value proposition, which is driver behavior change, has, has been government and, and the insurance industry uh, because they, they don't really know how you drive. You know, or how far you drive, um, but they're picking up the bill for when you drive, you know, uh, badly. If you ask any individual driver, they're awesome. I think you know. Of course, we are. Everyone's amazing at driving, and the problem is other people, otherwise known as traffic. Um, but individually, we're all fantastic. <laughs> I, don't, I, th I think people use four-letter words. We never refer to yeah, it as traffic. traffic. We, we use four-letter words yeah. when we refer to the other drivers. Yeah, um, but the. the there's there's industries out there there's there's government bodies out there and they have direct budgets that you know they need to you know, need to pay people to sweep up glass and and soak up blood um and we're we're demonstrably significantly helping um you know improve those metrics uh and it's really it's been really valuable and sort of enjoyable actually for us to see how we can make a difference mm. that was what we were what we're about mm. so i think it's important to mention as well with this with the government project that we're working on at the moment, mm. that it's individuals have signed up 
to be part of of that um, of that program. Right. So, so, under so the privacy. Hours. So the privacy rules. In other words, you're preserving people's privacy because you're allowing them to opt into this. Exactly. So this this is um, the government is looking at the data of, of this group, yeah. um, not actually our our regular GoFi users. You know, their data belongs to them. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You had. Seven employees, I think, when we spoke for the first time. How many do you have now? Um, I see, well, so we're still on seven. Um, we've got four, five on the engineering side. We've got customer support. Um, and then we've got a distributed team of three on the marketing side. So you're still relatively small. We're still pretty lean, yeah. yeah. So um, it makes us exceedingly affordable. Um, if, <laughs> if you're a, a large insurance company out there or a government that needs to uh, improve outcomes, then, yes, we're very affordable. I think I'm going to charge you a sponsorship fee for this slot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you've kept yourself very lean. Has that been hard? Has there been uh, has there been a constant sort of desire to be able to add staff and grow bigger, or have you been how have you been able to keep that desire in check? Um, yeah, look, I, I think what we've done is we we focused on Australia, right, um, and that's allowed us to kind of leverage the data to build some of you know, build some depth in the downstream partnerships. Um, so you know we we're we're improving, you know, like Danny says, we're in 52 countries. Mm. Anyone who's using GoFar is, on average, getting about an 8% reduction in fuel use. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also pays out in sort of safer driving as well, yeah, so less extreme events. The insurance companies in those countries, uh, the governments, they're just getting that for free. We're not yeah. able to monetize that yet because we don't have people on the ground. Um, so we're trying to see Australia as a as a as a test bed yep. where we can create those relationships. So we've got partnerships with roadside assistance, mm. uh, insurance, uh, servicing, um, government now as well, and um, we'd be looking for you know partnerships on car sales as well because frankly it should be easier to sell a car. If you've got you know, seven months of history of how that car's actually been driven, if you can see that that car has oh, been driven in the top of course. Sort of 10%, yeah, yeah, yeah. then you're going to publicize that. Yeah. If it's been, been sort of you know, bumping along in the bottom five, then you know, well, maybe you'll lose that data. Yeah. Um, but, uh, oh, mate, sorry, that got overwritten. <laughs> yes. Um, so, and, and that's exactly you know, what the insurance industry is yeah. interested in and yes. what the drivers are interested in as well because we're trying to make this yeah. win-win. The insurance industry, the basic model there is good drivers subsidise bad drivers because yeah. you can't tell the difference. So you have to work on a statistical model. If you can actually measure who's good, well, they can get rewarded. Mm. Okay. Um, you have, you're planning a new Kickstarter now. Um, probably not a Kickstarter. We're, we're thinking about a Kickstarter. Or is we, it just a new product launch? Well, we, 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 we've got a few sort of things that we're going to add into the product right. just to flesh out the, the data set. So just a GPS, for example. Mm. Um, so we've got, uh, we'll have a very full location data set. And there's interesting developments in sort of hyper-local businesses um, that we could we could take advantage of and help people out with, I think. Um, but no, we were looking more at, uh, there's been legislative change that allows crowdfunding now, so equity crowdfunding. Yes. And so that's that's very much on our on our radar. Oh, so wait a second. So you mean you're talking about making an, uh, an offering of shares? Yeah. Yes. Oh! Because yeah. that, that's been very sort of tightly held yes. um, for you know, the, the, the funds and the VCs. And the sophisticated investors. The sophisticated investors. Um, and, you know, there's, there's now an opportunity. The ASIC is sort of putting in the protections yeah. that will allow... 
um, sort of retail investors yeah. to to take advantage of these you know, quite hard to reach startups, high growth companies, and um, that's pretty interesting yeah. for us as well. It really democratizes the funding. Well, yeah. So up until now, um, regular people on the street haven't been no. able to invest in in startups and take part in this. Yeah. Um, it's been as as we talked to the do- domain of VCs and people that are termed sophisticated investors. Um, now that this legislation has changed, we're able to go out and, and regular people like you and I can can come and invest in in startups. And I think in, I think Mark's sophisticated. <laughs> You'd be surprised how unsophisticated I am. Um, does that mean that you're going to your customers first, and you're going to say, "Here, you can own a part of us"? Is that are you thinking of doing that, or are you just going to do something a little broader than that? Oh, we would definitely start there. And the interesting thing about that is that over the last couple of years, since we've actually had customers, yeah, um, I've had a number of those customers say that they'd love to invest if they could. Yeah. Um, so funny you should ask. <laughs> yeah. Here's the deal. Um, so but there hasn't been a mechanism. But there has not been yeah. a way for them to do so yeah. unless they've got 100 grand and they're earning, you know, 500 grand a year right. or whatever the sophisticated investor limit is. And so so equity, um, f- equity crowdfunding sits in this middle zone between sort of private raise where you have a few people who 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 would do the investing in own shares and a public offering, right? Correct. Yeah. So, how, what does that mean for you folks in terms of governance, or how are you starting to think of this in terms of governance? How is the board going to interact with and respond to the fact that there could be a few thousand people yeah. who now own shares in the company, right? But it doesn't have the same, I guess structure as a public corporation does, right? Because it doesn't have the same reporting requirements, presumably, that a public corporation does. Yeah, it's it's a stepping stone, I think. So I, I think any company is looking at sort of, you know, what your sort of financial sort of trajectory looks like. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you might be looking at sort of listing or IPO at some point in the future. And this this can be a useful stepping stone. It, it doesn't make a lot of difference for, for GoFar currently because we we have a, a board we meet a, we meet monthly um you know we are you know, we, we're we we're sort of producing monthly financials um so most of the requirements you know we're, we're already ticking those boxes we need to add one director um, okay. which we, we've got lined up so it wouldn't it wouldn't be particularly onerous for us, and because we have the sort of the history on on the Kickstarter, and again that's pre-orders rather yeah. than equity. Um, but we found that sort of building the community helpful and yeah. you know, kind of part of our process. So having we don't see that as a disadvantage. Having a few thousand you know people, it, it, it comes back to this whole thing about the value comes from the collision between your ideas and... Collision may not be the the right word to use. Yeah, okay, whatever. It's a symbiotic relationship. (laughs) You know, the synergy. Uh, Haven't said that in two years now. I know. Um, So if you've got investors, um, it's just another way to bring in feedback. Um, You you tend not to win by working in isolation. Mm. So if you've got, you know, if you've got a great way to connect and people are motivated to give you feedback as well, you should be really open to it. What... Investors, the sophisticated slash angel slash Series A, get quite sniffy around equity crowdfunding. They, I get the feeling that they feel it's less legitimate. Have you encountered any of this either from your existing investors or from other potential large investors that that that, that you're going to be hurt in their eyes because of it? 
Um, I, I think there's, there's, there's been sort of two, two sort of schools of thought. So, you know, one is just like the standard way, you know, you, you kind of build your business, you get your sort of you know, VC funding, your Series A, your Series B. and you, You're you know, missing you go public. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I just think sort of some of the more sort of open-minded you're seeing, you know, this is actually quite useful. It's, it's partly a funding exercise. It's partly a marketing exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good way to align channels. So most of the companies that have done crowdfunding, it's been partly for, you know, a, a financing perspective, but it's actually been very helpful from a marketing yeah, perspective. Which is the well. thing we all learned about it, Kickstarters, it right? Builds Kicks, awareness. Kickstarter exactly. is a fantastic way yeah. to build awareness and channels as well. So on B two B, it's quite helpful on channels. Yeah, but to to um, on your question there, I think there there is some of that sentiment, um, and one of the hypotheses around why mm. is that it's um, it kind of it breaks the. Um, Monopoly, the comfortable relationship. Let's call it a comfortable relationship, shall we? Don't want to get too too severe around that. But yes, I, I mean, I, that's what I. That's why I, I feel like there's some level of they they understand it and they don't maybe like it that much. And I, I feel it's also I get the same thing with VCs around ICOs. Now, the thing we can say about ICOs is that a lot of them are dodgy as. And the thing we can say about some of equity crowdfunding is that some of those companies probably couldn't raise in more conventional channels, which wouldn't be true for you folks. And so it, it is interesting in this new realm, I think before there's a lot of track records that people will tend to, how would you say it, um, would, would tend to be more quick to judge than maybe they should be? Yeah, possibly. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing a raise at the moment, yeah. um, which is your more traditional raise. Right, exactly. Um, the, old, the old school way. Old school. And so we've got existing investors have got a, um, are putting in about a third. Um, a couple of new angels are putting in about a third and funds are putting in about a third. Yeah. Um, so we've got a couple of well-respected funds. Um, and so, yeah, that and that works fine. Um but from the the channel perspective, like whenever we've gone out there right. okay, and but, engaged, it's it's benefited the business. So what you're saying here is it's not an either or; it's a both and. I think, yeah. Look, it, that's it, that sounds really yeah, good. It's, absolutely, yeah. it's it's a helpful way to build the business. I think, and, and, yeah. and, and that's you, very clever. I like yeah. that. If you look at the startup startup ecosystem in Australia, yeah. you know we need every little advantage that we can get. So this is another mechanism to help more startups be successful, you know, and, and that's great. All right, last question. I'm going to have you back in 2022. <laughs> I know, I know we all laugh, but yeah. I'll have you back in 2022, and what does GoFar look like in 2022? Is it still seven employees? Um, well, yeah, maybe sort of seven per country. I'll try and, try and right. keep it lean. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the big things that we're working on now are um, sort of internationalizing. Mm. Um, so we've we, we've seen that the the product reaction is strong. Um, so now we need to sort of push out. We'll start off with some of the English speaking countries. Um, we will have um, a lot a lot more recurring revenue um, in the model. Uh, so we're looking to earn about a hundred dollars per car per year okay. um, through helping customers, mm. helping the uh, the B two B organisations. Um, we've just started talking. We've had. Uh, internal responses already from um, you know, Scottish and, uh, and Canadian road safety bodies, um, from uh, 
Southeast Asian fleet companies, Southeast Asian fuel companies. Um, and so starting to build the ecosystem that allows us to better support drivers. I think we're always going to be driver first mm. or owner first. Um, so, but supporting these, uh, you know, these drivers with better data and then better offers. And that's also going to help the downstream partnerships with you know, insurance companies will be able to price risk better. Fuel companies will be able to target their offers to people whose tanks are empty rather than just spraying wildly. So we'll help them be very um, surgical in how they deal with their customers because we have the data stream. We're going to stay very affordable um, and we're going to stay very driver centric. What you're going to see is a, con a continuation of more and more value being added to the product for the driver. Mm -hmm. that, that's, the, that's the thing that we care about ultimately mm -hmm. is how do we use that data to add value to the person who owns and drives that vehicle. So you're going to see more and more features that, that, that make their life easier. And in fact, that's, that's the, the, the core um, ambition of the business is to make the experience of car ownership dramatically better. Than what it is today. There's a lot of stuff that we have to do with our cars that just sucks, and and we strive to improve those things. Um, like you know, we're dealing with mechanics, like insurance, like registration. Yeah. Um, if you've got servicing, uh, logbooks, you know, all these sorts of things. Parking, speeding. We, we bring this together to to add more and more value to the user. And so, what we what we want to see is to grow our user base from the thousands to the hundreds of thousands over that period of time. Danny. Ian, thank you for joining us once again on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having us, Mark. Thank you very much, Mark. University of Technology Sydney recognizes the incredible potential of the next generation of Australian startup founders. UTS believes entrepreneurship is about doing, inspiring students to take that first step on their founder journey, then encouraging them to keep going. UTS Startups supports student founders from ideation stage to launch with one-on-one -on -one mentorship and guidance to support them from across the entire startup ecosystem. This new UTS startup model focuses on connecting each founder with what they need when they need it, as well as forging connections between members of the UTS startups community. Go see their vibrant collaboration space on Harris Street in Ultimo or visit startups.uts.edu.au to find out more. We recently launched a new segment for Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia, asking all of the many incubator and accelerator programs running across the country to spruik their programs to twist their listeners in their own words. This week, we'll hear from Nicola Farrell, director of the Moru D Accelerator. Take it away, Nicola. Thanks, Mark. Moru D is a global accelerator backed by Telstra. We've been around for five years, delivered 15 programs for 128 companies. We exist to give founders the know-how and the network to go further faster. And we do this through our six-month program that's centred on founder development and startup progress. 
We provide 75k cash investment on an uncapped safe note. That's a simple agreement for future equity. So we're friend in friendly terms. We don't take equity until you've raised your first round. And that's typically between 2 and 8%. And we also offer co-working space for almost 12 months, an overseas trip to an ecosystem, uh, access to entrepreneurs and residents, an extensive network of mentors, tactics for investment and a pathway to growth. And it doesn't stop there. Our alumni network exceeds 300 members spanning 14 countries and it includes great startups like Pixie, Open Learning, Drive Yellow and AgriWeb. You will be in great company at Muradi. So if you're a founder using tech to solve a world challenging problem, testing an early version of your product with a customer and you're ready to move faster, then apply to Muradi. Our applications are open next Tuesday, 2nd of October, for our sixth programme, starting February 2019. Gosh, where do I even start? All right, let's start here. I do plenty of mentoring, but as became abundantly clear in my oh crap moment after I realized I had deleted 20 incredible minutes of conversation with Alan Jones, I realized I still have plenty to learn. And as Alan said in the first half of the interview, the one that you'll never hear, it's because we've made mistakes that we have something to offer because we don't want to see folks making the same mistakes. Now, that doesn't mean they won't make new ones. It certainly doesn't mean we won't be making new ones. My goodness. And it was interesting listening to Ian and Danny because you could tell that some of what they're saying is not that they made mistakes per se, but that they had the wrong ideas false ideas about what they thought the customers wanted from their product and that it took being mentored by those customers to turn GoFar into the company that it is today. So in each of these cases, we have to be willing to accept, acknowledge, and learn from our mistakes. That seems to be the essence of what it means to mentor and to be mentored. Big thanks to Twista sponsors MYOB, UTS, and Campaign Monitor. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to Alan Jones and apologies. Thanks to Danny Adams, Ian Davidson, and Nicola Farrell for joining us on this episode. We've recently rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links to all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week with more great stories from the heart of Australia's startup community. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. 